Well, hello, and thank you for joining me today. I've got a very special and important guest for us today to have a really very important discussion about how children breathe and sleep. Today with me is Dr. Audrey Yoon. Doctor, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for your invitation. I feel so honored and I'm so looking forward to having a great time today. Yeah, definitely. We, we, we've been talking a little bit about um, you know, getting together for a discussion on these issues. A lot of people out there today are experiencing you know, the, um, a lot of the issues that associate with how children sleep and breathe now. And there, is, there does seem to be this connection between how the dental arch develops. And you as an orthodontist has been someone that's working in this area uh, in, with quite a lot of detail in, in the last few years. And there's a, there's a body of literature we're going to talk about, which I'm really excited to. But I thought before we started, you could help the audience understand how you began this journey into, you know, from as a, a, a board registered specialist orthodontist um, into understanding this world of sleep breathing and, and how you began to think about that. Yeah, it's a long story, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, incidents, uh, incidental meeting uh, with the great people. So, uh, where should I start? I mean, originally I was very into aesthetic aspect of medical field. I don't know if you remember the show like Extreme Makeover, The Swan in US. And also there is a show like Let Me In in Korea. Now it's a global program. And I graduate, graduated from Seoul National University Dental School originally in Korea. And during my dental school, I grew interested in orthodontics, you know, giving people beautiful smile, you know, so cool. And also I went into the orthognatic surgery field. You know, jaw surgery has to be combined for these extreme makeover cases and that, you know, give you a really life-changing moment. So I wanted to move to U.S. to study further. But, you know, still, even now, the aesthetic is still my core value. And when it comes to treating my patient, at the end of the day, my patient has to look beautiful, period. Uh, and even all this, you know, thinking of uh, um, the airways issues, uh, if you actually get the AOA correctly, your, your patient going to look beautiful. So I went to the UCLA. Uh, I went to um, U.S. and I went to UCLA for dental school again, and I did orthodontic residency and pediatric residency there. But during my residency, I met Dr. Pei and Dr. Hopper, who is a huge in sleep apnea brain research at UCLA, and I became fascinated to sleep apnea. So I ended up doing my master's degree specializing in obstructive sleep apnea. But even that time, I didn't know how to connect the orthodontics and sleep apnea together. But at the most important moment was I met my surgeon, Dr. Stanley Liu. He found me because I had a strength in orthognatic surgery and my background of sleep apnea research. So I started collaborations with the Stanford sleep surgery and I started treating this sleep apnea patient every day. And I mean, by the way, Dr. Liu is amazing, bright, uh, like most accomplished surgeon I've known. So you should interview him soon there as well. But Dr. Liu, I've been very open to new ideas and integrating to um, our new, in our practice um, and how we can improve our surgical success, how we can move our field to the next level. And, and still, even now, the sleep medi medicine field is very much in its infancy. 
And during my um, Stanford collaboration, I have my like life-changing moment, uh, which I met my mentor, Dr. Christian Ginamino, who is the godfather in the sleep apnea, who doesn't, uh, who the, for the people who doesn't know, he's the one who found the sleep apnea, found the pediatric sleep apnea, named it sleep apnea, categorized it, invent, invented like AI. HI index. He also brought the MMA surgery to sleep field. It's basically he made this field to the up to now. And now, I mean, unfortunately, he's in heaven, but I miss him so much. But he was my inspiration. Um, past years, his passion was to look for preventive treatment for sleep apnea. Um, he has a pressure me that, Audrey, you need to come up with a growth modification protocol for children. And like, doctor, there is not that much evidence. People not gonna, you know, you know, believe in me, but no, you need to help our kids. Imagine and come up with a new idea. Try them to see if it works. And, you know, the, the power of imagination gonna transform uh, our field from like treating disease to preventing them. And I mean, he had many brilliant ideas. He encouraged me to find more reliable way to grow the maxilla for all ages, like from very young ages to even adult OSA, where uh, we designed, we call DOME, the Distraction Osteogenesis Maxillary Expansion Technique. And now that technique is still evolving every day. And CJ also asked me to look for frenulum research and like you need to find the missing puzzle of this sleep apnea relating to frenulum. There was maybe genetic component. You need to do saliva research to look at for the frenulum. You need to find the you know missing in a puzzle. And I mean now uh, a lot of my current research are very clinically oriented. Now I want to find the answer for uh, my clinical question in my everyday practice. Like I see the relationship between clinical finding, like, oh, after expansion of palate, the patient's parent, uh, parents are saying that, oh, they, my kids stop snoring. Oh, when I see some high arch palate, I often see, you know, they have a short frenulum. And, you know, with my clinical experience, I can hypo hypothesize like, oh, this relationship, but, you know, myself, I want to know this really related. And if then why, you know, there is a huge lack of evidence and research in this area. And there is not that many good paper with the high impact vectors, peer review journal. And, you know, there is no consensus among clinicians, even from very basic questions. So, you know, beyond this anecdotal uh, evidence, we need to have more concrete evidence to connect this dot to have more comprehensive understanding and insight. And eventually, we want to set up the new standard of care. And in order to accomplish that, I need, I really need mainstream scholars to help. So now my passion um, past few years is to raise awareness of sleep disorder breathing in each specialty in mainstream and push these mainstream scholars to open their heart and work together to move this field to the next level. And I'm so excited to see the change of our, our residency program curriculum. Um, you know, in the past, our uh, traditional orthodontics and pediatric residency was very close. Now I teach the dental sleep medicine course for UCLA, University of Pacific, UCSF resident. Now it's a part of curriculum. 
And we are launching the Dental Sleep Medicine Fellowship under uh, Universal Pacific Orthodontic Department for Orthodontics. So our new uh, fellow, orthodontic fellow, will board certify for dental sleep medicine. We'll learn how to treat this sleep apnea patient as orthodontists and going to be new ambassadors in this field. And I hope I can share this exciting news officially very soon, but it's a very exciting time. That is really exciting because, as you say, there has been a big gap in the understanding of what clinicians are seeing in the practice and what they can actually do about it, and then what the literature um, says, you know, and guides us as to, um, you know, how we how we understand and treat these conditions. So it it really is a very very important piece of um, work that you're doing. That was why I was so important, uh, so excited uh, to interview you, and it's great to see that Christian Gilmer's work is just flowing out. You know, you know, beyond you yeah. know, unfortunately, beyond his um, passing, and that this is all happening, and so it's 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 a really amazing story, really that um, that we're we're beginning to see this flow out into the um, into the world of how clinicians can actually help patients with this. I wanted to just quickly because it's, I find this really interesting the uh, the connection between um, between beauty and orthodontics and how you see if you can just give us a little bit of an overview before we dive into the. The sleep world, because I, I really like this idea between aesthetics and you know how we grow and develop, and then the connection to health, um, you know, in terms of you know the the fundamentals of 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 the airway development. So, can you just give us a little bit of a a, a view from an orthodontist how the idea of beauty and the dental art forms a beautiful face, just to just to help us start thinking in this um, the way an orthodontist does. I mean, the, the most beautiful face is from the healthy individual, right, at the end. And I think, um, like, for example, this is our everyday, um, you know, like everyday, how are we going to move these, you know, faces to better, like, uh, for, like, for example, the surgical um, planning. Okay, so there is a, like, three big dots. One, we want to have beautiful occlusion. And then we also have... Um, like a beauty component, we want to make sure my patients like a beautiful, and they want to make sure that there's an AOA component. We want to make sure that our patients breathe better and help help you know healthy better. And a lot of times, if you plan properly, we get all these uh not two rabbit the three rabbit together.s um, Ideally, we want to get it like when the our child is growing, like when they are young. Um, we often see when they have a sick kid or they cannot breathe through their nose, we see the, uh, their craniofacial structures is changing in wrong way. I, uh, you know, like a lot of times the uh, patient come to me and like, Dr. Audrey, I want beautiful smile. Please like straightening my crooked teeth. And, you know, often orthodontists just to focus on teeth alignment and that's how we get trained before. But in a lot of time, the teeth alignment and bone shape are telling you the stories. There is a reason they've been shaped that way. You know, like malocclusion can be sign of other medical conditions. It's like a tip of an iceberg. So like, so when you're actually looking at the, the whole patients and whole the individual, uh, on the surface meaning, um, maybe it can be simple, open bite, high angle, narrow, high arch palate. But actually, what really means in the deeper meaning, when you actually really see, the patient has been mouth breathing. There is a airway obstructions. There is abnormal tongue functions. 
and the patient is growing in wrong direction. That is the real message the the male occlusion is telling you. So I know um, you know a lot of orthodontists can straighten their teeth beautifully. All these cases, but if you go like one step further than like aligning teeth, uh, what is the main root cause, and what is there's anything we can help? Like um, different treatment approach maybe make difference and make my you know patient healthier. And a lot of time when we you know uh, when we start early enough. Um, we can make the face beautifully, but also we can make the teeth beautifully and the, the occlusion beautifully, and they also their bite beautifully. So, yeah, there is a lot of you know, um, like the three dot actually connecting together, and we actually approach it as a whole. I don't know you make it, that answer. No, that, that that explains it really well, and you know, it, it's amazing this connection between you know how you know because we're talking about facial development, and the you know the face is you know our tool for you know how we communicate, how we connect with others, and and also you know for you know for facial beauty as well. So it's amazing how the the orthodontic growth and development is underlying these really critical you know parts of our of our human self. So I I find that really interesting and something that just doesn't get discussed very much. Um, in terms of you know how we're shaping these, you know, if, if we can understand the underlying issues there, you know, can we help people to be you know better, um, not better, but you know, express themselves a way that um, they're, they're designed to? It's, it's really interesting. Uh, I thought that we could start to dive into the the patient um, the, the patient presentations that that you're seeing in your practice. So. You know, for parents out there, you know they have children at home. What is Dr. Audrey Yoon seeing in her 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 clinic that that kids are presenting today in terms of the types of um, malocclusions? And then later we'll go into your papers that that describe you know a lot of these bigger questions as to why it's happening. But what are the the big presentations? You mentioned a couple there that that kids are experiencing in terms of their dental arch development today. So uh, maybe it, it actually that's why I uh, came up with the, the other the six flag of papers. It's not out yet. It's actually uh, it's gonna publish the next week in the pediatric uh, dentistry journal, and it's very exciting because I know pediatric dentistry uh, society is very very conservative in the past, and um, they're really hard to publish in the, that journal. But once you get published, now become a standard. So I'm actually very excited to our paper uh, because um, like dental professionals um, need to play a key role to recognizing this disorder because we tend to be uh, in a contact with our par- patients and parents more frequently than other health professionals. And we are dealing with this like a dynamic oral structures that affect you know, vital functions like taste, speech, mastication, swallowing, and oral hygiene and breathing disorders. And this function also related to alter the skeletal jaw development and dental malocclusion during child. And, you know, it's important because this uh, maxillofacial skeleton defines the foundation and dimension and the patency of the nasal and oropharyngeal airway, and all the identification of these influ- influencing factors will create opportunity to modify their facial phenotype at younger age 
and make our patient healthier for the rest of their life. And if you know that it's very simple, like a red flag, you recognize, and then you actually talk to their parents, even even their young age, and we educate them what to look for. And um, that, you know, those like a, like a red flag, if, if there is a red flag present, that really, you know, kind of raised awareness even for the par- parents so that we can see. So, I mean, the common sign of sign and symptoms is, as you know, um, you know, snoring, some mouth breathings. Um, and, you know, these days, like a lot of my uh, patients have ADHDs or they have a tempers or, um, uh, or like I have a lot of them with the autisms and, you know, those like a kind of common sign as well. But uh, in this paper, we um, also developed to identify like functional and like kind of extraoral and intraoral features associated with this increased uh, risk of sleep disturbance. Uh, and we wanted to develop the very like, you know, functional airway screening tool, very simple. Like you just look at the six factors and then see there's anything. So uh, we found the six red flags for a uh, pediatric dentist during our like a routine dental exam. And there is a six red flags. One is the large tonsils. And then another one is mouse breathing. And another one is a difficulty in closing lip together. So we call mentally strained where the, the kids cannot close their mouth and also look for tongue tie. And if there is a high narrow arch palate and dental wear. So this is the uh, six uh, red flags you can clinically you see for the patient's kid, kid's mouth. And if there is um, like a zero to one red flag, then you have low risk of sleep disorder breathing. If you have a two or three of these red flags, then you have mildly increased the risk of sleep disorder breathing. If the kid has four to five red flags, there is a moderate increase of risk of sleep disorder breathing. And if you, your kid has all six flags, the patient has a higher, super higher risk of uh, sleep disorder breathing, and we you need to really look for additional helps. So we found a very like a very simple uh, six to six flex, and then we came up with a very simple and easy and kind of clinical, you know, uh, finding that even parents or you can educate even caregiver easily to kind of identify early enough. What age groups would you say? that this is ideally applied in and, you know, are, are there different presentations, um, you know, through the different development, developmental periods, um, you know, in terms of how parents and practitioners should be thinking about when to identify these, these issues? Yeah. So I'm sure we, I mean, so this is the area that we need, like, a lot of research. Uh, the the six flags and that paper are based on our mixed dentition age group. So uh, we got our data uh, from uh, 100 um, mixed dentition, the pediatric de- uh, pediatric patient who came to UCLA uh, pediatric dentistry. But if you like, you know, looking for younger child, of course, it's it's a uh, they are too young to. Um, develop the you know the mentalist strain and stuff so when you're young uh, when you're also that is another thing i uh, there was a little question that how you're going to approach the tongue ties and you know uh, expansions and of course there's um i mean that's my ultimate goal to establish the 
uh, growth modification protocol from very, very young age to all ages. But when you're like a newborn, yeah, you have to see, you know, their breathing, their like mouth breathing. They actually tongue ties play a very important role. Um, you actually see how they, even their sleep positions, like uh, we call a uh, child pose on the yoga, like you put your butt up and then you just like, uh, you, you, you put your butt up and then you just go to the, the side. The, or um, they, your kid is sleeping with a very extended neck. There is a reason your kid actually sleep that way. Uh, maybe they're, uh, they position themselves to breathe better. So you have to really look for their breathings and the sleep positions, and then also see, um, you know, there, there is any obstructions um, like the tonsils, or you also look at, you know, tongue ties, those like for the more younger child. And then once the, the child developed, yeah, we, you need to really see their behaviors. Um, I think the attention deficit, or they are still betting their, uh, they're wetting their bed. Uh, those like a more for um, toddler to the in, toddler to the mixed dentition age. I think the one uh, we came up with is a little bit more uh, older age, um, like more mixed mixed dentition age. Yeah, and you know, as you say, this is all being you know currently shredded. <laughs> so, so there will hopefully be, in, and at yeah. the rate you're going, it won't be too long before it's together. But the, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, but at, this is a picture that is is very kind of multi-dimensional from the growth and development. You know, right from um, from a newborn, there are little signs that we can pick up, and some of the signs in your um, in your paper can be picked up, you know, quite early and then others will, will show up later. And so you said the mixed dentition, which is, you know, between your know, six and 11, that's the kind of the age group that, um, that parents will be, uh, that your paper focused on and parents can pick this up too. The, the, the paper describes, um, the, the Gilmo musculoskeletal hypothesis. And this is, this is the idea that our habits shape the dentalage. Can you describe that and maybe, you know, kind of compare that to a, a more classical um, view of why crooked teeth occur? So, uh, I mean, I just uh, tell uh, my patients and uh, the same thing that my, my patient comes to my uh, dental office and they usually have those presentations. I, I wish I can uh, have uh, maybe some example. So our, our bone and uh, Cranial structures like to grow from the even pressure, so we call neutral zone. So our teeth like to be in the neutral zone where there is the outer uh, pressures, outer force, and the inner force kind of neutralize. So, for example, like a typical when when we look at their mouth and also their the jaw structures, if they have a narrow arch, so our uh, upper arch dentition supposed to be in between the tongue pressures from inside and then cheek pressure we call vaccinated muscle from outside. So often um, if you have to be breed mouth breather or you have some kind of tongue fun functions. So maybe everybody can put their tongue to the roof of your mouth and your tongue supposed to support your palate. That's how we naturally develop the palate and that's 
this natural expander of our palate. But if you try to put your tongue and try to breathe through your mouth, you can't, right? So somehow you are mouth breathing. Um, it can be you have big adenoid. You can, it can be from big tonsils. Uh, it can be nasal obstruction from crooked septums. It can be allergy, asthma, or it can be simple habit, like when they have like thumb sucking habit or pacifier for a long time. They lose the balance. And the tongue cannot really go to the roof of your mouth because you have to breathe through the mouth and your tongue posture goes down. You lose the support from inside from the tongue. And in order to swallow now, in order to create the proper negative pressure to swallow, tongue usually come forward. Now, a lot of people say tongue thrust habit and push your, their tongue forward and in order to create the seal now you are using a lot of boxinated muscle and your limb muscle so you have to use some other muscle to make your uh, shape like your dental arch shape so often those patients i see that their upper and lower dental arch is kind of collapsed and uh, if the tongue adapt decide to adapt to the the forward and then we actually often see um, the open bite. And now uh, that swallowing pattern uh, doesn't really have proper seals. So often the patients um, get some stomach issues, like for the young kid, they cannot really digest properly or they cannot really chew properly. And then also that affects the speech because your air is leaking when you try to do the speech. And then now it's become like a vicious cycle. So now you don't have... Uh, proper structures. And now it, even though you tr your tongue tried to swallow properly, they cannot really go properly. And then it just become uh, worse and worse. And we actually see them very often. And whenever I see these like malocclusions, like open bite or even spacings, and uh, we have to really see where is, a, what is the root cause? And a lot of time is their functions, um, and uh, a lot of time is their muscle functions, their airways, and those like um, the maladapted their tongue functions. You know, it, it's interesting because these presentations are so common now. It's it's to begin to start to think about what you know where they all start is quite um, you know it, it's quite a, a big thing to be trying to comprehend because you mentioned behaviors like pacifier. Or a you know maybe thumb sucking in a in an infant to toddler, these habits can um, obviously you know prime a you know a young child to these oral dysfunctions that do affect how their their jaw grows. How how would you say that this this early these early periods so like breastfeeding and um, pacifier use is affecting um, the the growth and development of of um, the, the arch later down the track. I mean, so when you describe an open bite, just so the people know at home, that's where the, the teeth don't meet at the front. So these earlier habits, they really are shaping how we, how a child is growing and developing later on. Why do you think it's so common today that we don't have this tongue posture? Because to me, I see it all the time. It's, it's nearly every kid. What do you think is is the missing link there? What has happened that has stopped these tongues sealing to the roof of the mouth? No, oh, I think I think that's a, your 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 specialty, right? There is a lot of diet. Uh, there is a dental diet issues. 
I think we are evolving too, and uh, also I think allergy play very important role. Um, I think almost like now is a half of population have some kind of food allergy or environmental allergy or seasonal allergy, and even I recently developed allergy. So um, I think the allergy uh, really play important role and which actually make our job really hard because mm -hmm. even though we try to make the structure really wide and we do everything, myofunctional therapy and stuff, but, you know, the kids has a chronic allergy. I mean, sometimes they have to breathe through their mouth to survive. So I think allergy, uh, I think that is a whole, like allergy and asthma, that is a whole the new uh, area they need to actually dig in. And then that's actually uh, one of those like really non-responder, um, responding those population for our uh, conventional um, the treatment. Um, they are like, there's huge uh, allergic populations and, I don't know. I mean, there is like, there are so many, uh, the new environment. I don't know. It's we are evolving is because of diet. Uh, but uh, by the way, the changing diet also change huge. Like I've seen a lot of, uh, uh, by my kid to change their diet, like, um, and then their inflammation goes down. So that is actually the whole area that we need a lot of evidence as well. But yeah, I have, I see them all the time. You're right. It's uh, a lot of time. It's not disease. It's hard to say it's a disease. It's just like, it's like a pandemic. Everybody has it. <laughs> it, it it's true. It, it's just, you know, and really the message out there for parents is that, you know, you're not alone in this whole, this whole situation because so many kids today are, are, are really struggling with this, with this problem. One of the, one of the big issues that, that, um, that you've looked at and also too that that parents will see is the poor sleep and you mentioned some sleep posture um issues so kids that sleep on their stomach or kids sleep sleep with their um with their legs up and and also their, their neck extended because they're trying to open their airway what about when we get into the um into the uh older ages or you know a, a little bit older when when the the um the dentition is through and we, we experience sleep bruxism. You've, you've written a paper on some of the um, hypothesized cause of sleep bruxism or co-authored a paper. And it's, it's at the moment, we don't have a direct definition, do we, as to why bruxism happens. So teeth grinding in kids. Can you help parents to understand what bruxism is and how, you know, we're beginning to understand, you know, the connection to sleep and what's actually happening and some of the signs that you picked up that are associated with, with yeah. teeth grinding. Bruxism is another big uh, gray area and um, like a very uh, controversial area. And that's why um, I wanted to dig in into the, the more research. Uh, so far, there's very, very little we know. So, I mean, bruxism is basically, we can say it's a grinding and they have uh, different bruxisms. So, when we say bruxism, there is a possible bruxism and they have probable bruxism and they have definite bruxisms. So possible bruxism is more like a self-reported. Uh, and the, the patient say, I'm grinding my teeth is called possible bruxism So because we don't know. Uh, probable uh, bruxism is the patient say, I'm grinding. Plus, you see some kind of uh, clinical uh, finding. There is like a dental wear. So you kind of flat surface of the teeth. And um, 
the pay, patient or parents that they, they grind the teeth, then it's called probable uh, bruxism. And definitely bruxism is uh, based on all three factors. It's a, a self-reported and then clinical exam. And then also uh, you need to have those that uh, we call polysomnographic recording. It's basically we actually have the audio video recording while you are sleeping and then see they're actually a little like, um, grinding. And the bruxism, especially in children, is super common. Uh, depending on the research paper, it can be like 5% to 50%. So it's like huge um, variable. And, you know, like I have a lot of those uh, parents that, okay, my son is grinding their teeth a lot and what can you do? And um, so far, current treatment modality in pediatric dentistry is only like limited in um, focusing on the consequences of bruxism, which is, uh, you know, you have, you know, the dental wear and now we put some occlusal splint or we do the dental restorations to restore. But even then is those mixed dentitions, like they keep changing their dentition. It's uh, even occlusal splint is not often, you know, recommended because it's not going to fit in, in a month. And, but we really don't quite understand the associated factors. We roughly thinking that there's a three big reasons. Um, the first, the most important reason is a sleep disturbance. So we think that, somehow their airway is uh, affecting during their sleep. Uh, some people, some kids are kicking their legs, so we call it rest leg syndrome. And then some people grind their te uh, teeth, so we call uh, restless uh, jaw syndrome, like uh, we call <laughs> the bruxism. But uh, the most common reason they grind their teeth is they somehow get the sleep disturbance. Also, there's a huge component um, it's a psychologic and physical stress. So the kids kind of grind because of a lot of psychological issues. And it's very rare, but sometimes uh, their bite is kind of weird, um, especially those mixed dentition that, you know, they lose the teeth and then they get new teeth and only one teeth are touching and they create a lot of interference. Kids like to kind of subconsciously grind them off to make it even to get the proper bite. So it's rare, but sometimes they grind their teeth uh, from those, you know, malocclusion, but which is very, very rare. Uh, and sometimes it happened during the growing child. But, you know, most likely we really don't quite understand the associated factors. There are some study that um, after they removed the huge tonsils, um, and adenoid, and their, uh, they reduce their grindings. So I think there is some relationship that, you know, we don't remove the tonsil because teeth are grinding, right? Um, there is also a study that after do, you know, palatal expansions, their grinding uh, reduce, like uh, the incidence of dental grinding reduce. But again, I mean, if the pa my patients coming, they're perfectly normal, 100%. Just because of I see the dental wear, that doesn't really give me enough indications to do the palate expansions. So we really have a lot of quite unknown associated factors. That's why we did the, uh, you know, our study. So uh, we actually look at the, the probable sleep bruxism. So we asked the parents. We did, we couldn't do the sleep study, but we asked the parents, and then we look at their teeth grinding, and then see 
well, who uh, fall into the probable state bruxism group versus the control. And then we also um, look at there a lot of clinical findings. And then what we found is uh, there's a few factors that associate with uh, sleep bruxism. So first one was impair the nasal breathing. So if the kid doesn't uh, cannot breathe through the nose, they tend to uh, grind their teeth more. And the habitual mouth breather also uh, related to sleep bruxism. And also interestingly, if you have a, a rest restricted tongue mobility, so you have a short frenulum, they also grind their teeth. And then if also they have, if you have a lot of um, like big tonsils, also they grind their teeth. Um, and then out of all these factors, actually the ankyloglossia found to be one of the important contributing factors for the bruxism site that was interesting. But then the more interesting thing is we split our data to nasal breathing group and mouth breathing groups. So when we look at the nasal breathing groups, uh, very low incidence of bruxism among these uh, nasal breeder happen. But then when we look at this mouse breeding group, now the ankyloglossia play very important role. And if the, the kid has a, like all three factors, like mouse breeding, ankyloglossia, and big tonsil, pretty much everyone has a bruxism. So we found that there is a synergistic effect. So if you have mouse breeding and ankyloglossia and tonsillar hypertrophy um, is really prone to have uh, significant uh, bruxism. So I thought it was very interesting. But yeah, there's a huge uh, area that we need to, you know, find more evidence. It is. There's so many, you know, obviously um, clinical aspects, but also to understanding the pathophysiology between, between all of those three factors as to why, you know, and, and, you know, why we're seeing this presentation. How do you, uh, I mean, the the connection between um between bruxism teeth grinding and the airway how do you explain or from what you've seen why do you think we see this association in the sleep studies between the sleep grinding um and the the airway issues what do you think the body is doing in those in those periods during sleep so it's again we we call uh restless uh, jaw syndrome so it's that we also there is a, a disease called restless leg syndromes so um when you really, especially for the kid, um, when they have the sleep disturbance, um, I think um, some kids are kicking their legs, some kids kind of moving their jaw um, to kind of basically uh, wake themselves um, so that uh, the airway doesn't get collapsed. I mean, I, that's how I usually explain to the, the parents easily. So uh, when they grind their teeth in, the, in their sleep study, not necessarily shows they have obvious like oxygen desaturations or obvious uh, amnia hypomnia index, but the kids doesn't really have a good night's sleep. And then we get a lot of those like uh, symptoms um, on the kid. So I don't know that answer question. <laughs> no, and so and there is some evidence to show that if if we treat this the obstructive sleep apnea, the the incidence of, of um, clenching Correct. goes away too. Correct. So there, yes, there seems to be this connection that is, and what you're you're saying is that there's no concrete understanding and and um, paper. Yeah. Exactly so so you know for for right now the guideline. So there's no guideline for the kids 
bruxisms, unfortunately. But if we're looking at the adult bruxism guideline, um, so for the adult, if they have a severe bruxism and then they have sleep apnea, they usually treat the sleep apnea first, either, you know, like CPAP or oral appliance. And then we see uh, if that actually uh, reduced the bruxism first. And then, uh, so if their uh, bruxism reduced after you treat the sleep apnea or oral appliance or the CPAP, if not, then we thinking that is not related to sleep apnea and then those like you use those like, mouth guard, we prefer to put the mouth guard lower arch than upper arch. So imagine you put the upper arch, the mouth guard, then you restrict the tongue space, right? So it actually get worse a lot of times. So we actually put the mouth guard on the lower arch for well, those uh, the sleep patients. But for the kids, uh, I mean, just the same thing. When the patients come to me, um, I I cannot really guarantee that after palatal expansions, your kids maybe grind less. I have actually a huge population that they grind less and they feel better. But there is a also a lot of population that they still grind their teeth. And um, yeah, so there is a, a, the many papers showing that after tonsillectomy, after palatal expansions, their incidence of their grinding reduced, but it's really hard. I mean, same thing as everything else, but um, I think eventually we want to have the like perfect phenotyping that we know that which phenotypes um, gonna you know help get helped by this kind of treatment so uh, we we still don't know who is gonna respond well and who is not gonna respond well so you, you're beginning to describe some of the work that you you began with dr stanley lu who you mentioned early um who is with the, the stanford sleep center in in uh at stanford university who really where christian Guillermo um, you know, kind of began his journey. And it's amazing that this work is still, you know, flowing on 30 years later. But the, the paper that, um, that you're involved in um, talked about the connection between palatal expansion, so the roof of the mouth, and the volume of, of the airways. Can you describe a little bit about how that paper came about and then um, the, the results that were found? Yeah, so um, the... So when I whenever I do the expansions, I do expansion for whole ages, from two years old to the adult. Um, and you know, like people ask me how expansion works. You know, like the parents ask how expansions improve sleep apnea. So uh, that was kind of my also my uh, interest to know uh, that how really like, uh, you know, uh, help the patients and how actually explain and why and who is the uh, responder and who is not responder. So I usually tell my patients so that your palate is the roof of your mouth, but also flow of your nose. And our airway uh, basically have a two airway, which is a nasal airway, which is surrounded by bone structures. So uh, when we expand, I know I'm going to, change my bone structures for sure. But then there also we call pharyngeal airways, basically the throat airway, which is just made of 100% muscles. There's no um, bony structures. But those the, the muscles is connected to our jaw, like upper and lower jaw. And when we move our jaw, those muscles can stretch. And also 
the tongue is one of the the most airway you know dilator muscles. So um, when we do some expansions, um, for sure, I know I'm going to improve the nasal obstruction because I know I'm changing my bony structures. And, you know, the nasal obstruction is so common. Um, it's almost like a 30, 40 percent of U.S. population with a varying degree. And especially for the kids, um, like, yeah, you can do adenotonsillectomy, allergy treatment, nasal spray, maybe some diet change. But there is not much treatment option for growing child because they don't do the nasal surgery like septoplasty for growing child because it affects the nasal maxillary growth. And when we do some expansions, because we change the flow of your nasal house. So when I, uh, when I talk to my patients, like uh, we are doing some remodeling of your nasal house. So we are doing, we're giving you more square footage. So we're giving you more nasal flow. And also that actually open up the, the side of the nasal house. So we give you more nasal cavity volume. But um, why you, but not, volume doesn't really mean it you know, everything all the time. So we found that we call internal nasal valve. Uh, internal nasal valve is the narrowest area of the nasal airway. And that represents about 50% of total air flow resistance. So um, a lot of ENT doctors, they are focused on, um, on that area, internal nasal valve. So, but, you know, nobody really look at the internal nasal valve uh, from the expansion. So I did a two study, one uh, for adult. For, so we used the dome technique, uh, distraction osteogenesis uh, expansion technique. And we also did uh, one study for the pediatric population for the young kid. And we look at their internal nasal valve. Uh, and also we look at the expansions. Um, and that, and also we uh, measure their, we call nose score, nasal obstruction scores, where how they feel much better in terms of subjective, uh, their uh, obstruction symptoms. And we try to, um, you know, evaluate these expansions as a valid treatment for nasal obstructions. Um, and actually we found that, um, um, especially for the kit, you know, when we expand, we see the diastema, you know, those, the diastema correlate with the internal, uh, nasal valve angle. And we can use those as a predictor for uh, internal nasal valve changes. And we, uh, we actually found that this is a kind of decent, uh, valid treatment for nasal obstructions. For the kit, if they cannot do any surgery and they, uh, you know, fall into those phenotype, we can use expander as a nasal obstructions um, treatment. And adult, um, now we have a whole dose uh, Stanford airway protocol. We put the dome surgery on the nasal surgeries. So uh, the our first um, effect of airway from the, the expansion is we are making your nasal floor, your nasal house uh, bigger so that you can breathe better. And we also attacking those narrowest area of nasal house so we can actually give you better airway. But also there is a secondary effect is we also making more volume for your tongue space. So what happened is, especially for the kids, about six months later after we expand, what happened is your tongue posture change. So now we give you more airway, 
Uh, we give you more space for your tongue and your tongue can come up and forward and that open up the pharyngeal airway. That is a secondary effect. And we actually see uh, for the kids more often, adult, you know, even though we give nice structured tongue, never been there. Uh, and and uh, so we actually need to do some myofunctional therapy uh, to let the tongue know that now you have more room, you can go up and move forward and explore the new area we develop. So that is a secondary effect of your tongue posture change to open up the uh, pharyngeal airway. And what really eventually what happened is we change, we call PCRIT, the collapsibility of airway, because we change the airflow from the um, internal nasal valve area. So we actually change, we uh, reduce the air turbulence. So now your air uh, breathing muscle doesn't have to work hard because there is no air turbulence. And now the tongue actually came more forward. So our airway collapsibility changed. And that's actually how Expander uh, helps for the sleep apnea. So it's like a three, uh, three steps. <laughs> it's so complex, isn't it? And, you know, it, it seems that um, different people experience these issues in different ways. You know, mm -hmm. you know, like you mentioned before, the the tongue tie and the potential connection between sleep bruxism. Well, you know, these kids with these, I see the low tongue and the tongue just doesn't come out of the throat. And sometimes they're not, they don't even have the tongue tie. And there's just this low um low tone in the muscle and they just don't know how to lift the tongue up and out of the airway mm -hmm. it's it seems that um there's these different presentations that and you're describing how all of these um factors come together to help the child breathe you know during the day and then obviously at night as well um one interesting thing you just describe i'll just um explain is that you said a diastema which is a gap between the front teeth related to the nasal valve um and, and that was a a, a measure measurable um way that you could you could see if you opened up this this gap in the child's tooth that you could measure the the patency of the the nasal valve that's really fascinating isn't it and yeah. do you think that um a diastema in children should be more common today oh no 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 the 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 measurement of the diastema after expansions so uh, I think we found the correlation after we do the um, expansions when we try to find the correlation and we found the nasal valve angle change and diastema change was uh, correlated. Um, okay, got you. Yeah. yeah, it's not natural. Do you, I mean, so in terms of um, spacing in the um, in the the pediatric dentition, do you think that kids should be developing more spacing? Is this something that you know, we've lost in a way? Or, like... We lost big time, yes. Yeah, so, so we yeah. call primate space. So the yeah. during the uh, primary dentitions, we're supposed to have a lot of space in between. And, you know, I guess it's now everybody else, like every kid come with the no space. It's very, very common. It's very rare to see some space uh, between the teeth. And we know that when the permanent is coming, they're going to have a lot of, you know, crookedness on the dentitions. And it's a great description of the, the bony um, architecture of the nasal airway and then the muscular architecture of the nasal airway in, in the pharyngeal behind the throat here. And that there are two ways to kind of approach this. One that, that you've looked and studied and that you do in your practice, which is ex growing the bone in the maxilla 
and the roof of the mouth, but then also the myofunctional therapy, we're training the tongue to come up um, into the roof of the mouth. Do you find that, what's the chicken and egg there? So if you um, train a child myofunctionally to lift the tongue to the roof of the mouth, can you see improvement? What should happen first or what are you seeing in terms of does there need to be expansion? Obviously, each case is um, is is different and individual. But do you feel that kids need um, orthopedic expansion first, or do we um, should we be training the muscles first? And how do these work in your clinic? Do you feel um, that there should be one should be happening happening before the other? So yeah, that's uh, so we're really uh, we need a protocol, and then we it's a lot of time is just. Practitioner's judgment call. Um, I do expansion for SLS to a two years old. It, and I, I also see very biased population. My patients tend to be very sick and they need help. And uh, they usually have a lot of other uh, medical conditions. So uh, we don't have time <laughs> to, uh, to develop. And there is a usually reason why they have already narrow hierarchy palate. So we usually, I just go and then expand it. So I think it's when you, I think those ages, um, like age under six, that is really like your judgment call. So if your kid is perfectly healthy, there is no other issues. Um, like no speech issues, no breathing issues, and they have a little bit narrow palate, but you know, um, you can actually work on, on your tongue. I mean, not every kid, every small kid need expansions. So for those kids, we, I can, you know, we can do more myofunctional therapy or sometimes the kids, uh, um, like especially for those young kids, like two, three, four years old, uh, even though I, I'm pediatric dentist, I'm comfortable, but not every kid I can handle in my dental practice to put the expanders and stuff. So, you know, those kids, we actually start with the myofunctional therapy first. Um, but for those patients that they already have those um, other medical conditions or mouth breathings, or when we look at whole their family, they're like mom and dad already have sleep apnea. Um, and then we, we see all those like a family histories. I, I tend to go early to get the structures because I know I can make those structures in two months. Um, and then we actually, it's so much easier. Um, they can work on uh, myofunctional therapy afterwards, especially when they have tongue tie and stuff. I think also dif- different ages, different, but um, like uh, my routine protocol is I give a structure first. I just go in and out to develop the nice structures in like two, three months and then uh, let the myofunctional uh, therapist to work. And then we do the tongue tie release and then we achieve the functions and I monitor. But expansion is really sometimes a lifetime and we need to really monitor and then see when is a good time to inter- intervene. And uh, I think it's a lot to do is the judgment call and we actually see their lifestyles and their parents' uh, willingness to do some work and you know, um, also other medical conditions. There's a lot of factors to consider. I think that's such an important point too, is that sometimes it's just not in the family's kind of, they're just not in the space to go through. Cause it is, it is intense treatment, isn't it? You know, expanding the palate, yeah. you know, there's a lot yeah. on the kid, it's a lot on the family. And so sometimes it's just not, um, they're just not ready for it. So sometimes you, you, you make the judgment call and yeah, I, I love that. What, what types of tech are you may techniques are you mainly using for, um, for expansion? So you mentioned you started two, 
these are fixed expanders. Um, do you use removable expanders in in? in no, I get this question all the time. So, no, I I tell my uh, my audience that the best expander for young child is whatever they are willing to wear. So I think when we, when I deal with the two, three, four, five years old, um, like they determine which expander they're going to get. So um, but in a, that age, their suture is wide open. Whatever um, they can wear is going to work. It's a, a removable expander, clear liners, fixed liners. Um, we really have to see their family, um, not Every family can handle clear liner, but not every kid also can handle sitting on the chair and then I can deliver the like expander and glue their uh, mouth and then take it out and clean the glue. So um, really, again, it's a lot of a judgment call, but um, I one thing for sure is I do very slow expansions. Um, even though I use a fixed uh, expander, I do very slow expansion during the primary dentition, uh, dentition age. And... Uh, now, actually, I'm also doing some study uh, with the Invisalign company that we actually do some uh, aligners. Um, it actually, it's working beautifully for those um, autistic kids or some uh, the patient has a lot of other problem where they need a lot of other therapy and um, or they have some hypo, um, you know, hypotoning muscles or the speech issues uh, date. And as long as the, it's more like a parent to work, as long as their parents are willing to do, it tend to work really well. And I think that is the age that we need to really focus on establishing like nasal breathing, habit corrections, and the early growth modifications. So it's like a lot of patients and parent educations and then collaborate with uh, myofunctional therapists and ENT doctors. Absolutely, it's it's a complex issue that that requires you know complex treatment modalities. The, you mentioned clear aligners, so these are clear aligners that are designed to grow and expand the jaw. Is that correct? Is it just mm-hmm. is it in the mm-hmm. horizontal dimensions? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And- so I have a lot of those family. They I try every single like expander in the world, and then the kids just taking out. They can tolerate it. Like I use uh, removable, and then you just like on the way home they throw away, you know. But then the mom is wearing Invisalign. The kids issues that the kids is wearing Invisalign beautifully, and I was able to expand almost like eight millimeters in like less than six months. And he, uh, the two by two years old, didn't even wear all the time. So that is the beauty of like all the expansion. Their bone is so malleable. So um, actually, now I use those um, the clear liner more often. Um, obviously, I don't have enough data uh, showing that they they get uh, as a skeletal expansion as the the, the rapid palate expanders. But that is the age that I use a slow expansion anyway, even though I use those uh, fixed appliance. So uh, I'm actually using more and more and I'm actually doing more studies. So hopefully uh, within a few years, I can show you the difference and how I can get the result from those populations. It's fascinating because it's a very, it, like you said, it's a very difficult and delicate area of dealing with young children. So I think the more techniques we have, it's it's just going to make this this easier to access for certain families and so forth. So I, I think that's great that 
um, you know, that, that you're and it's actually the easiest technique ever. <laughs> you just <laughs> yeah. need to spin and give them uh, instead <laughs> of you dealing with a crying kid on the kids so on your dental chair. So actually, it's a win-win. <laughs> it's easier for me, and then easier for the parent. They, you know, they don't need to come often. Um, like for me, it's like my, you know, those uh, pediatric patient uh, treatment becomes so much easier. So. Uh, if that give us a good promising result, like, yeah, definitely it's a go-to. And sometimes that's the only option, though. Like, I get a lot of those uh, kids uh, refer from all over the world and nobody can treat. And, you know, like, I deliver them with a line and I treat beautifully. So, uh, you know, sometimes that's the only solution. <laughs> no, it makes sense. Dr. Yoon, you, your work has been so instrumental in helping this, um, you know, these techniques and these, um, you know, ju- just the concept of understanding how the, you know, childhood dental arch influences how a kid breathes. I think it's so important. So I want to thank you so much for that. Where do you see or where do you hope this is in five, you know, maybe 10 years? What what would you like to see <laughs> in terms of how you know, we are looking and treating our, our children in, in the future? Yeah, I mean, Probably still myself, uh, and probably with a lot more uh, the papers and research paper. I think I hope I'm still accessible, and maybe I can do another interview with you in five years. Uh, I think our future study, our focusing um, is more precision medicine. Again, it's like a phenotyping. It's like instead of we just throw the expander for everyone or throw the one technique to everyone, we want to know that which technique works for uh, each phenotypes and we know why this patient was not responding. So we try to find the, the, um, the reason um, between between the responding group and not responder group. So that is our main focus. And then my another main focus is again, uh, I try to um, to convince the the, my mainstream scholars in the different field. So hopefully uh, this field is become mainstream field. Uh, I I think it's coming. So uh, hopefully (laughs) um, like, this is it's not for the only special people do. It's actually it's just the standard of care um, for every uh, dentist and orthodontist and like physician uh, think alike uh, in the future. So, uh, but I'll be still myself the same, same way. <laughs> well, I hope so because you're such a smart, you know, highly specialized, high, highly educated, and you're just determined person. Because the the work that you do, it, it isn't easy, as you say. It has been. A very under um, underpublished area and under a very misunderstood area. So the work you you've done has been very critical in helping others to understand, you know, how we 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 just think about these things with our patients, and then hopefully, as you say, in the future, building you know protocols for you know parents and practitioners to really address these these very very difficult issues in children. Doctor, you know, I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, you know, I do hope that we get to to talk about this and all the progressions in the future and all the best for your, your coming research and, and your clinical work. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Oh, thank you so much for invitation. I really had a great time <laughs> and see you in five years. <laughs> <See you> in five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.